Welcome to Multifamily Syndication Unscripted, a show that teaches investors the truth about multifamily real estate. Your hosts, Ben Labovich, Sam Grooms, and Scott Hollister have more than 30 years of combined experience in real estate and finance. We are active multifamily syndicators and operators, providing you with detailed and cycle-appropriate content. Absolutely no fluff. So, if you want to be smarter about how and where you put your capital to work, listen up. You will learn what works in today's market conditions. So, just so that you guys know, and I'm sure that you do, uh, the first episode, and Sam wasn't there, Scott and I recorded that episode on our own. For property taxes? For property taxes. Uh, this this property tax item is a volatile item, and, and that's something that can really destroy your underwriting if you're not careful. Um, and it's very market-specific, obviously. Insurance is kind of like that. And it kind of makes sense if you think about it. So if you are located in a place where it gets cold and pipes freeze, do you think your insurance is going to be more expensive? The answer is yes. If you are located in a place that gets a lot of rain and it's very hilly and there's a lot of water that's flowing down toward your foundation and sometimes it's getting in and there's furnaces down there and, it, it, you know, the water covers furnaces and it's not unheard of. Do you think your insurance is going to be more expensive? Yes. Do you think that if in your city um, the stock of buildings is older, do you think the insurance is going to be more expensive? The answer is yes. Do you think if you are prone to hurricanes, if you are, you know, it, it, natural disasters. Do you think that's gonna impact insurance costs? Yes. One of the reasons I love, and there's many reasons I love Arizona, is because it is a very low property tax, uh, tax state, but it's also a very low insurance state, all things considered. I have seen, and I am paying on my property that I have in Ohio, I'm paying on the average now, you know, pushing $300 a door for insurance in my property in Ohio. In Arizona, we can buy insurance for about 160 bucks a door. Practically 50%. Okay, this is your basic fire insurance policy. Okay. Um, that's low. That's going to be higher in Ohio. It's going to be higher in Indiana. It's going to be higher in Texas. It's going to be higher in Louisiana. It's going to be higher in a lot of places in California. It's going to be a lot higher in a lot, a lot of places. Why is that important? Because at the end of the day, what you are looking at when you buy income property is how much income am I generating? And how much overall cost am I going to have? 
like by the time I bundle everything together, all of these line items we've been talking about, how much is that going to cost me? All of it together. You know, the property tax is a volatile thing. I mean, we see in Arizona here that we can underwrite property for $450 a door tax just because that's, you know, the, the way it is. Plus another $160 of uh, fire insurance. And you've got yourself about plus or minus $600 in those two line items. Well, you take that property and you put it somewhere in the Midwest and your property tax goes up to $1,200 a door, if you're lucky, okay? And then your insurance goes up to $300 a door. And instead of, you know, cumulatively talking, instead of $600 per door for those two costs, tax and insurance, you now have $1,500 per door in just those costs. Thereby, if everything else is left equal, if all of the, and they're not, they're not because we discussed R&M is going to go up in certain cases uh, when your stock is old or when there's a lot more, you know, going on, when there's a lot more boilers and chillers and all that stuff. Other costs will go up as well. But even if we say everything else being equal, you've just picked up $900 of operating expense on a per door basis in just taxes and insurance. And so you better be asking the question of, well, okay, if I'm going to buy a property over there, then the income better be higher. But is it? In most cases, it's not. Okay, this is, this is why we like Arizona. Because it's, it's... So if I don't know what the insurance is for my area, um, is it okay just to use the T12 insurance amount? No. No, because the T12 guy could have had this policy for seven years. Right. He hadn't had any claims. Maybe they inflated it somewhat, but maybe they didn't inflate it all that much. So you can't trust that. Right. And maybe, yeah, the purchase price was so low that the insurable value isn't comparable to what I'm paying for it. Exactly. Just the same as taxes. You can't assume because the other guy was paying X that you are also going to have that. Yep. And you need to be careful. We can talk about South Mountain. So you ex- in Arizona, we expect 150. When we were, when we're underwriting South Mountain, we saw 300. And we found out you know, South Mountain is actually in a flood zone. And in Arizona, you would never expect to be in a flood zone. These flood zones were built or determined in 1950 um, when we first put in canals and 30 years before there was ever construction and in that area. And they don't take, they haven't taken in effect, in effect any changes that have happened since then. And so lenders still require flood insurance, even though there's never going to be a flood at that property. Yeah, there's never been one. There's never going to be one. And these canals, obviously you're in Arizona, so there's, it's a water delivery system, essentially. So they're man-made canals, and you have, you have them everywhere in Phoenix. And you'll have them like, you know, in a $3 million house is going to be in the flood zone because right behind the house there's going to be this canal running, you know, in like some place in Scottsdale, you know. So it's not, it's not to anybody any kind of a deterrent for any reason whatsoever. It's just the way the city is set up, the, the, the right. water distribution system. These canals are part of it. 
Well, like Sam said, you know, when they first laid out those canals, they said anything close to the canal, it's got to be in the flood zone, FEMA said. You know, it's got nothing to do with any kind of potential of flooding whatsoever, basically. It's just it, it, on the books. It's next to a canal. It's got to be a flood zone. And, and But this determination happened in the 50s. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so but not knowing that, your, your insurance cost is, is doubled. So we're at 300 a door at South Mountain. And we, I mean, we've got such a good deal and we have economies of scale like on payroll so we can absorb that. Um, but you just have to account for that and you have to know if you're in a flood zone or not, and that your insurance is going to be a lot higher. Yeah. And we, are working, we are working, right, Sam, on, um, yes. on, on mitigating that with FEMA because there are, there are processes in place. Yeah. So you can have a surveyor come out and determine the elevation of the flood zone, the elevation of your buildings. If there's a certain amount of difference, you can have FEMA basically almost remove you from that flood zone in effect and not require the significant flood insurance that you have otherwise. Mm-hmm. And so we're in the process of that right now, but obviously we couldn't do that before closing. Well, that's good. I ran to a guy at the IMN conference that specifically does that. He'll come and do everything that you just talked about. And if he's correct in having them drop flood insurance, then he'll just collect the spread that you would have paid the next year. Yeah. Bonus for free. Hey, hook me up with his number. We'll I have it right behind my desk. I'm going to shoot it to you guys right after. Is he from oh. AFR? That's one of I the bigger ones. Florida? Somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Um, so I think that's all for insurance. Uh, Want to talk about marketing and promotion? Yeah. So that's an interesting one. Um, Sam and I have a different perspective on syndication business. We don't see it as a business. We see it as an opportunistic play whenever we come up with a really intriguing opportunity. Um, This goes back to maybe a couple of episodes ago. I was talking about how I don't really want to be vertically integrated. I don't want to run a business. I don't want to have payroll that I'm responsible for, for people on my end. I don't want to have to feed the machine, so to speak. And I don't want to have the moral hazard of needing to do a deal because I have people on payroll that are sitting there and underwriting deals and they have to get paid and they're that are doing marketing and brochure design and whatever have you, you know, I don't want any of that. So one of the defining characteristics of what makes Sam and I pull the trigger is that we don't buy apartment buildings. We buy stories we buy very compelling, like, why is this going to really be attractive to both tenants, to our buyer when we're done, X, Y, Z? Well, if there's a story, then you shouldn't have much expense in marketing because that's essentially what a story is. The story itself is going to drive your market. It's going to position your asset a leg above competition so that you don't have to spend more uh, dollars to drive people there. And this is, this is 
this is just, this is structural to us. We are, you can almost look at, in fact, we have, you know, look at property and say, we don't want it. And it just so happens marketing would be through the nose in that property. Well, the reason the marketing is going to be high is the same reason we don't want this property. It's just got, it's got with what it is, where it is, there's deficiencies in it. To get people in it, we would have to spend a lot of money in marketing. And if you only think about numbers, then fine. If you can absorb the numbers, then you wouldn't have a problem with it. Then you're in the business of buying apartment buildings. Then you've got a building just like every other building, just like every other owner, and you're competing for that stuff. We don't want to do that. We practically, like Sam, and I, Sam, we never talked about this, but it's almost like I want to buy buildings that don't require marketing budget because for what they are and where they are and what we're going to do with it, it's not going to need a marketing budget. Right. And, well, and, and we have kind of talked about it. When we look at a property that's not on a main road and you're the side road, we we immediately kind of discount that property. Uh, you're going to have to spend a lot more on marketing because you don't have all that main road visibility. The two properties we've bought here in Phoenix just have a ton of visibility. I mean, one's on baseline, which is the busiest road in all of Phoenix, right on hundred feet of uh, front, frontage on right on the road. And then the other one's right on the same street as uh, Grand Canyon university. We have all 20,000 students going. Um, and, and I think we look for, like you said, like a place that have a story that they're but they also have this a lot of visibility and you don't have to spend a thousand dollars a month marketing it. But it's important to note that we also underwrite spending a thousand dollars a month to, for marketing. Or more. Yeah. Right. But the perspective on it is that we really don't want to have to spend that. Yes. You'll have to have a, a website hosted. You will have to have, some amount of marketing dollar, $200 a month, you know, whatever. You, you just structurally have to have it in order to have a website, in order to, you know, but you really want to buy the kind of property that you can look at it and you can say, because of what it is, where it is, because of the unit layouts, because of the unit mix, because of the unit sizes, because of the finishing textures, because X, Y, Z, it's just not going to need marketing. Case in point, South Mountain, yesterday we received our, we get reporting from the on-site manager on a weekly basis on Monday. She had, so yesterday was what, the 25th? Um, this month, the 1st of March through the 25th, she had 67 walk-ins to that property. We have not a zero, it's zero vacancy right now. She had 67 walk-ins to that property. We're not marketing. We're not advertising anything. 117-unit property, she had 67 walk-ins. That's what we want. Yeah. And another case in point for, I think I just pulled up Canyon 35's marketing expense last month for February. We spent $59 and internet advertising last month. Hmm. Throwing and, down the big bucks. <laughs> yeah. Big spenders, big spenders. Yep. Um, and I think another key point is you really get economies of scale though, if you do have to have marketing, um, when you go from 100 up to 200, 300 units, because that same, that 
that thousand dollars a month in advertising on apartments.com isn't going to change if I have a hundred units or 200 or 300 units. Um, so if you are having to market, it's much more efficient to have a lot of units. So if you're not going to have a lot of units, it's much better to do what we do, which is buy stories instead of buying apartment buildings, whereby structurally you're not going to have to spend a lot of marketing. The same rationale goes for general and administrative. So let's talk about general administrative because that's the other line item for this, uh, this, this podcast. So GNA Think of it as office expenses for the most part. Think of it as office expenses. And, you know, whether you have 200 units or you have 100 units, I mean, you got to buy a little more paper. You got to buy a little more ink. You got to, you know, but you still need one fax machine and you still only need one copy machine and you still only need one computer in the office. And you still only need one internet connection, one telephone service. So you, you can see how the economies of scale make sense. So what do we have in our underwriting typically for these line items? So for, for marketing, we usually do about 125 per door per year. Right. Uh, general and admin, uh, about 400. Right. Um, insurance, like you said, 155 is what we had for Silvertree. Right. Um, for, for general admin, you also have uh, legal costs. So if you have any evictions or anything like that, you're going to show up in general admin. And that could either show up in GNA or it could show up in contract. It yeah. could be one or the other. Um, but... I will have to tell you that maybe we need to move our GNA up to like 150 because I have noticed we've been running a little higher than what we uh, we underwrote. So we may have. You mean a 450? A 450, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. The only other line item, and it's a difficult line item, utilities. It's difficult because I think as part of this conversation, we have to talk about master metered properties and how you go about that. Um, okay, so one, utilities are obviously property specific. Uh, so in this case, you are relying on T12 to look and see what the utilities are running. T12 or even T24 if you can get your hands on it couple of things to understand. If the property is right, if, if, if you're buying a repositioning property and it's been running with 15% vacancy, your utility number in the T12 is going to be false. Uh, why? Because, you know, you are either paying to heat and cool vacant units, right? Which means it's a utility expense of the property. Or if you have a general expense, a property-wide expense, uh, it may be lower than it should be because you've got 15% vacancy, which means there's fewer units, uh, fewer residents using services. So maybe you can afford to have trash pickup, um, you know, 
twice a week. Instead, if the property was fully occupied, you'd need trash service three times a week because there'd be a lot more people living there. Same may be true with other costs. Okay, so in that we tee this up with you're looking at T12 to kind of gain an understanding of where the property operates in terms of, uh, you know, the utility costs. Understand that it's very dynamic number. It, it could fluctuate. And then you're, you're really looking at what you have asset by asset, like what you are buying and how it's been running in order to understand if the T12 needs to be adjusted going forward based on your future performance. And this is true even for uh, individually metered properties. Now, master metered, typically we don't buy. We, we're not interested in master metered because there's such a thing as called functional obsolescence. And this is where, you know, at the time a property was built, maybe some aspect of it was okay within the scope of accepted norms. But today, people simply expect something different. And you can have this, you can have this manifest itself in unit layouts. You can have it manifest itself in not having sufficient closet space. You can, uh, you know, not having microwaves or not having dishwashers and having no room in the kitchens to install those things. All of those are examples of inherent functional obsolescence that unless you can remedy You've got a functionally obsolescent property that you don't want to buy. In terms of utilities, people want to control their own heat and AC. In 2019, people simply want to control their own heat and cold, period. You know, trying to sell to people that it's good for them to not have that control is going to be a hard, hard job that you just don't want. Even if you could make money on it, you just don't want. And then you back into the money conversation. Well, what if it's a master metered property and you just, you, you collect money for it, you increase the rents. And so the property pays for all of those costs, but you simply collect it. Well, that's a lot easier said than done. Why? Because how do you market it? Let's say you have a two bedroom, two bath apartment. And let's say the building next door to you for the same condition, same approximate size. Let's say a two bedroom, two bath rents for $1,125. But your two bedroom, two bath, in order to get $1,125 in rent, plus to pay yourself back for the utilities, you would have to collect $1,475. Well, how do you market that? How do, you, how do you efficiently get this message out to people? Hey, you never have to worry about your utilities costs because it's fixed and it's built in. First of all, it being fixed is not a great thing either because the, the utilities go up all the time. And once you sign that lease for months, you can't do anything with it. Okay? So... It's, it's, it's really, really quite hard um, on the marketing side to, to present this as a winner to people. Couple that 
with the fact that it's functionally obsolescent, all the people see is that big number, and it's just it's just really really difficult to operate. Mm-hmm. Make sense? So utilities is kind of a it's it's kind of like property taxes. It's kind of it's 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 very difficult to give you like a scope of where it should be. Like in Phoenix, you know, we'll see everything from eight hundred to twelve hundred dollars per door that that falls within reason. So call it a thousand dollars on the average. Um, that would be reasonable to run mm-hmm. here. But that could be vastly different where you are because the water is more expensive uh, or, or electric is less expensive or what have you. One thing to look out is if you notice that your water is out of your general range, you could have a leak. And that's a pretty big indicator that there's some kind of leak on the property. Um, so you want to look at the property and know what's usual and consistent with your area to see if anything's out of norm. Absolutely. All right, Ben and Sam, we made it. Finally, only took us, what, halfway through to get a name. <laughs> and another Sam's still through. wearing the same T-shirt that he wore in the first episode. <laughs> Good thing this is the same day. We, we did this all in one day. Yeah, no, no, we really didn't. I can smell <laughs> him from my house in Chandler. I can smell because it's a, literally the same T-shirt. Actually, I can smell both of you because your beard, forget it. <laughs> ben, oh, Ben. So, so what did we talk about? We've talked about uh, revenue, which consists of rents, other income, your rubs, and then your economic loss. So, so, yeah, so we need to bring this thing into a landing, right? We, we spent 11 episodes taking a, a kind of a detailed, although, you know, there's only so much detail you can, you can do without really putting your nose into a spreadsheet kind of thing. But let's, let's walk this backwards and let's uh, just kind of paint the big picture, take five minutes, So we talked about rents. We talked about how important rents are because that's the beginning and the end of everything. Where are the rents going to be when we're done doing what we're doing? So we figure out a rent number and we put it at the top line, but then we have to discount it for certain things called economic losses. We talked about LTL, loss to lease. We talked about the physical vacancy. We talked about concessions. We talked about bad debt or credit loss. We talked about non-revenue units. So those are all kind of bad drags on your gross potential or gross schedule income. That by the time you kind of allocate or, or predict or acknowledge that you're going to have those economic losses, then you end up with something called effective income. Then to that, we add our utility income and we add some of the other income to that. And we also talk about the importance of getting your rents right. I mean, we, we talk about the insensitivity analysis and you could be off on a lot of other stuff, but if you're off on rents, it's a huge impact to your returns. Right. And the fact is we're buying a flip, which means we've got to sell more for more than what we're paying for. And the fact is, and we talked a lot about this, is that an income property, generally speaking, rent 
pegs the, uh, or income, I should say, pegs the valuation. Most of your income is going to come from getting those rents correct. So if yeah. you don't have your rents correct, you've got a big problem. But by the time you add your utility income and your other income into the equation, you arrive with your effective gross income expectation. And now we have to subtract the operating costs. And in the operating costs, we had a show on taxes, property taxes. We discussed insurance. We discussed repair and maintenance, R&M. We discussed general administrative. Contract services. PNA, yes. We discussed contract services. Payroll. We talked about payroll. We talked about management. And we talked about utilities. And uh, marketing. And marketing. And those line items constitute basically every line item that you would want to account for, would need to account for in the life of a multifamily property. Now, there's also something called CapEx, capital reserve, capital expense, all of that stuff. Uh, we're going to discuss that. We're going to tackle that. That's a big topic. We're going to tackle that in season, uh, well, either two or three. We haven't decided yet, but we're going to be talking about that later. But once we have our income, we subtract our expenses, we arrive at our net operating income. And with that, gentlemen, I think we need to call an end to season one. And one point I wanted to make about operating expenses is just they're very specific to your area, to your submarket, to your property, to where your property is on the road. Um, and you just you just really have to be mindful of that. Um, you can look at averages from your PM, from your and from sources like IRM. Um, but you're really going to have to go down to the property level, too, to get some of these. So. Well, that's the essence of underwriting, I think. Yeah. You start with the averages. And you don't assume that you can do any better than the averages. And I think fundamentally, like, you know, last time I underwrote a property, I called Sam and I said, dude, I'm coming up with like $3,900 per door of operating costs. I said, there's no way. There's just, you know, we got to have, we got to hit at least 42, 43. I just don't believe this number, but I'm going through these line items. It's like everything seems to be right, but I'm not trusting that number. So I'll say something here. You go to the, you start with the averages. You should know for this vintage, for this mechanical setup, for this unit count in this location, in this submarket, what it typically cost to run property. You should know that you should have this data and it's very location specific and property specific and vintage specific and all of that. You start there, you underwrite the averages. The only way you change the average in my book is to the upside. You say it's going to cost you more. I think it's a responsible for you to say you're going to run it for less than what the average in the sub market is. That scares the shit out of me when people do that. And when I do it, when I, when I come out with a lower number than what I know I expect, 
Then I call Sam and I'm like, what am I making a mistake? Because this isn't right. This shouldn't, shouldn't be. I'm not comfortable with that. I'm not going to my investors with that. I'm not right. going to a banker with that. Well, and, and even if there isn't a mistake, we still inflate it. And we're going to get it up to 4,200, 4,300. Yeah. And that's a separate conversation of what it costs per door to run. We didn't really touch on this. We should have a show where we look at some of the averages, we look at some of the reporting out there, and we see what the average cost of running property is in Phoenix versus Cincinnati versus, you know, Houston versus, you know, whatever. Just to give you guys a, the big, the big right. picture. We'll do, a, we'll do a podcast later on that kind of does that. Okay, walks you through all that. But with this, we've talked about the income, we've talked about the OPEX, you arrive at the net operating income. We haven't touched anything on strategic approach to underwriting. We haven't really talked about, yes, we mentioned it's a flip, but what does it really look like so, in terms of- Yeah, and so there's a lot we haven't talked about. I think next season we, what we wanna cover is uh, like rehab costs, your closing costs, deposits, reserves, your financing options using growth rates to come up with a pro forma, putting everything in together into an IRR model and a pro forma, um, going through due diligence, LOIs, making offers. Uh, so I think we have a lot to cover next season on this. But it all starts with finding a deal that makes sense, you guys, yep. which is why we started here. Because if you don't have a concept of what's your income going to be, what's your expenses going to be, if all you know is 50% rule, <laughs> you've got some problems. So we're trying to educate you along those lines, okay? And trying to get your mind to think in the right direction. Yeah. So this was the starting off point. And now in season two, we're going to dig into some more of the mechanics, some more of the specifics around all of this. This is the multifamily syndication unscripted. Uh, we thank you so much for joining us. My name is Ben Leibovich. I'm joined by my partner, Sam Grooms and Scott Hollister. It's been a real pleasure to, to put this together for you guys. We're, we're enjoying uh, uh, the process and we'll look forward to season two, putting a lot more content out for you. Thanks so much. Have a great day. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Multifamily Syndication Unscripted with your hosts, Ben, Sam, and Scott. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a review and subscribe, and we'll catch you next time on Multifamily Syndication Unscripted.